0: Hello, and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 101 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, I have the honor of chatting with former Walt Disney Imagineer Tom K. Morris. Tom worked at Walt Disney Imagineering for over 35 years. He started with Wet Enterprises back in 1980 with the development of Epcot, and he went on to develop and conceptualize ideas for countless classic attractions you know and love at Disneyland, Walt Disney World, and even Disneyland Paris and Hong Kong Disneyland. So in today's episode, I get the chance to chat with Tom about some of the projects that he brought to life and some of the things he loved about working at Walt Disney Imagineering, plus some of the people he got the chance to meet. And because of that, he's been working on a couple of new books, and we talk a bit about some of the projects he has in the works since he retired from Walt Disney Imagineering the end of the episode i'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show so grab some headphones pull up your favorite armchair and enjoy this episode of the imagineer podcast When you think of iconic imagineers one name that undoubtedly comes to mind is former creative development executive tom k morris tom worked at walt disney imagineering from 1980 until until 2016 helping to develop attractions like journey into imagination star tours sleeping Beauty castle at disneyland paris cars land at disney california adventure park and so many more Tom also served as an executive producer for Hong Kong Disneyland, and he helped develop concepts for attractions like Rock and Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith and Disney Quest. Beyond his role in Imagineering, Tom is also a lifelong Disney fan and a fellow Disney historian. So it is my great honor to welcome Tom K. Mars to the show. How are you, Tom?
1: I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Such a pleasure. I have been wanting to chat with you for a while, so it's great to finally get you on the show. And I even teased out to a few listeners that I was going to be chatting with you and some sent in some questions that I'll ask along the way. But uh, it's it's really great to chat with Imagineers who have worked for the company for so long. And you have done so much. And like I said, not only are you... Uh, have done a lot with Imagineering, but you're also... A, Huge Disney fan yourself, and we're going to tap into that a little bit. But I, I wanted to start because uh, with a with a question around really what you do, because with Walt Disney Imagineering. There or I should say what you did, because um, with Walt Disney Imagineering there are so many disciplines, and Imagineers I've spoken to have have mentioned how there are sometimes you know hundreds of different roles. So, I mean, you we we introduced you as ha- being in a, a creative development executive. So, uh, how do you explain this position um, or what you did to someone who's unfamiliar with what a creative development executive does?
1: It's the hardest position to have to try to explain. Uh, <laughs> when I started as a apprentice draftsman. it was pretty evident (laughs) what it was I did. (laughs) Um, And I've had, you know, several roles that were, you know, a lot easier to explain, but basically um, you're making decisions about, you know, you're kind of making final decisions about the creative direction. I mean, you're hopefully setting an example or setting inspiration for the creative direction. Um, but ultimately, more than actually producing any deliverable sketches or artwork, you're kind of um, conducting, like an orchestra, all sorts of different um, disciplines to make sure that um, the not just my vision, but, you know, the company's vision, the team's vision, Imagineering's vision for uh, what that project is. And so um, I personally get, do get involved a lot with um, decision-making about all sorts of things like graphics and color and music and, um, you know, not just the architecture, um, not just the writing or the, you know, the scripts. Um, you know, I'm, I'm involved in a little bit of all of it. And some of them I I get more involved with than others. And I think that's probably true for all of the um, creative direction executives. And and I have produced also um, as well. So uh, I kind of done it all, but basically you're a conductor, you know, and you're conducting the orchestra.
0: That's a great way to summarize it. I think that there are so many moving pieces with Imagineering and it takes somebody to sort of steer the ship in the right direction. And it makes a lot of sense to equate that to composing or to, I should say, uh, conducting an, an orchestra or being a coordinator for all the different talents and uh, all the different parts of the of the full equation. And, um you know, we, we I mentioned in the beginning how you were a, a lifelong Disney fan and and grew up going to Disneyland. Uh, you know, back in the day. So, what were some of the uh, attractions or aspects of the park that captivated you growing up? Because I feel like a lot of the Imagineers have that passion or something that they gravitated towards when they were going right. to the parks when they were younger. Um, that interested them.
1: Yeah, well, I've probably told this you know story before. Um recently a couple of times that it uh, you know we started going there when i was in a stroller and we would our family would go there once a year um in the summertime usually on the fourth of july and um i just remember my first impressions were that it was not a kiddie park you know that it was some place that was um more sophisticated than that because we would go to places um like the music center um, that had just opened um, to see like free Christmas concerts and things like that. And so our outings tended to be a little more, I won't say educational, but they they certainly weren't, you know, carnivals or things like that. I don't think we even, I don't remember being taken to Knott's Berry Farm. I don't remember going there until um, you know, we took field trips in grade school. That's <laughs> you know, very far. Um, so I, I just remember that it was a different kind of a place, you know, that it, it just had this, um, atmosphere that, um, and there were a lot of adults, you know, there many more adults. I remember being there than people that were my age thinking, you know, I'm thinking now like three, four, five, six years old. And, um, So, you know, Fantasyland, of course, was, you know, colorful and very childlike, but the rest of the park seemed, you know, there were exhibits that were kind of serious in Tomorrowland. And um, so it was just a very different kind of a place that, you know, you would never refer to as an amusement park.
0: Yeah, it's true. It was definitely a theme park, just like the other parks as well. I mean, it's the same thing. I grew up going to Walt Disney World from the time I was in a stroller. And my favorite park when I was younger was Epcot, especially back at that time. It was not like a very kiddie park at all. It was right. almost considered to be the adult park in uh, in Disney. But Right.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> that, that was the intention to to some degree.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's a good segue. I, I want to maybe bounce back to, to Disneyland a bit. But because you worked at Epcot on a lot of the uh, early attractions that were there. Uh, What was it like to design such or to help to design parts of um, such an iconic park?
1: Well, um, it was exciting because um, I felt like, and I know a lot of other people felt like we were doing something that was meaningful, you know, that was that was even more meaningful than designing attractions for Disneyland or for Magic Kingdom, that it was somehow going to provide an example or a model, even if it wasn't the actual city that Walt envisioned, that it would be um, a place of ideas that would um, be, you know, that would inspire others, inspire people, inspire communities, inspire nations, and, um, you know, as it turned out, I think that was very true, especially when you um, listen to some of the folks, not even folks who went into Disney, but folks who went into other um, uh, disciplines and became leaders um, in in those areas where they say that they were inspired to become an architect or an engineer uh, because of Epcot.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an educational park in addition to being an entertaining park. And I could see how it would inspire a lot of people at a... Uh... I feel like if you if you go to interventions, you're probably thinking about which unfortunately is, is not there anymore. But uh, if you went to interventions, you probably were thinking and looking at all the the creative ideas that were ahead and the technology that was to come and feeling inspired for what you could possibly do with your own career and, and what ideas you could uh, bring about. So I could definitely see that being the case.
1: What yeah, more? It was yeah, a wonderful time to be, you know, to be working there because it was very optimistic and very, um, you know, uh, not that it isn't now, but it was, you know, there was just an extra sense of um, forward kind of movement and thinking and um, that was outside the typical themed entertainment realm.
0: Yeah, for sure. Very, very different park. Um, to take a little bit of a step back, how did you end up getting a role with, uh,
1: with Imagineering? Well, I sometimes kind of joke that I was drafted, (laughs) uh, which is kind of true because I, you know, at some point, I think in my junior or senior year of high school is when I kind of decided between many different things that I was interested in that Imagineering, um, would be the first place I would kind of go. And um, so I had already been working at Disneyland and by the time I entered college or the year that I entered college coincided with the year that they announced Epcot, that it would be opening in 1982. And also around the same time, I think they announced Tokyo Disneyland. So at Disneyland, um, they, in addition to announcing that they announced that they were initiating a career planning and placement for lack of a better term, um, program. And they were seeking, uh, people's, um, resumes and portfolios because in the next four years, um, you know, they'll be ramping up also animation at the studio, I think was kind of bundled in there too. And so, um, they, you know, the the larger Walt Disney Productions was looking at Disneyland as being a resource for attracting um, talent, um, even at, you know, entry level. And it wasn't just artistic and creative. It was everything. It was uh, accounting and finance and planning and project management and all of that. And um, so they invited cast members to um, submit their resumes and portfolios, and they would be kept on file. And remember, this is 1978, so um, there's no internet. So this is these are hard files in file cabinets, you know, <laughs> and I thought, you know, I wonder if anyone will ever look, right? You know, does it just go in the same file that every other, you know, submission or application goes? So... But I submitted a resume and took photos of the art and of the um, drafting projects that I had done in high school. So most of what was in there was my first year of college and three years of drafting in high school and a few illustrations I had done. And um, just hoping, it was really just to like, the way I was thinking about it was this is a placeholder So when I graduate from college, um, you know, they'll be familiar with me perhaps. And um, so I was thinking three years ahead, not, you know, a year ahead. So (laughs) (laughs) I got uh, a call or a visit, I can't even remember now, uh, from a (laughs) headhunter, an internal headhunter named Stan Sola. Uh, there were two. Joel Trinist was one and Stan Soa was the other. And um, they said, You know, they need you at WED. They need um, architects and um, drafts people. And I said, Well, I just, I'm now in my second year at college. So I don't think I'm quite ready. As much as I'd, as I'd love to drop what I'm doing, it probably wouldn't be prudent. And um, I, had, I kn- knew Tony Baxter at the time. And I probably consulted with him and he said, well, look, when, um, by the time you graduate, that'll be like 1982 and they'll be finished with those, right. projects. <laughs> and who knows if there'll be a wed even, uh, a wed enterprises, you know, after that. So, uh, you know, if I were you, I would get the experience now. And then if you need to go back to school, go back to school. So, okay. That that's what I wanted to hear. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, So uh, I interviewed with George Windrum, who was the head of the show set design um, department, and he hired me and I started right away at the beginning. Well, what would have been the beginning of my second semester in my second year of college? And I was hired on the strength of my drafting that I had done in high school. So all of the illustrations, yeah, that was kind of bonus stuff. The work that I was doing in college was, you know, bonus material. Um, They were, they needed draftsmen and they needed good draftsmen. And they could see that I had some imagination because my drafting projects were not the typical, you know, hospital or office building kind of thing. That's how I started. I, and I took a pay drop because I was uh, a ride operator and I had been working at Disneyland uh, for some time, first for a lessee that ran the balloon concession. And then um, as soon as I turned 18, I moved into operations and the Teamsters, uh, they were Teamsters at the time. I don't know what they are now, but it was part of that union. And they said that they had to put my they told Disney they have to put my payback or my hire date retroactive to the balloons, which I'm, I don't know if Disney would have put me in operations if they had known that they would have had to do that. So I was making <laughs> $6.80 an hour as a senior in high school, which wasn't too bad.
0: No, that's that not bad at all. <laughs>
1: back then. <laughs> yeah. Back then, and I took a pay cut to, uh, to then um, go to WED. So, but, you know, I wanted to get the experience.
0: Yeah, for sure, and it's definitely a good experience to get. And I would have done the same thing if I could work at a, be able to work at Wed. I would take a pay cut happily. And uh, I know people would probably even do it for free if they if they had the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Um, you know, Imagineering, it from the Imagineers I've spoken to, have always talked about it being a team sport. And there are so many, as we talked about earlier, there are so many different components to Imagineering. And I know that for Epcot in particular, there were a lot of Walt's original Imagineers who either were still working at WED or who had come back out of retirement. And I feel like, especially as a someone who's just starting out, there's probably a lot of uh, a lot to learn from, from some of those original Imagineers. Were there, were there any in particular that you felt were great mentors or people who you just through working with them uh, gained a lot of knowledge and insight about what it's like to, to really be behind the doors at WED?
1: Yeah, I think it was something that you just kind of organically um, picked up uh, working, you know, um, from time to time with the different folks, like, you know, briefly with Mark Davis, um, briefly with Claude Coates, um, I can't remember if I actually ever worked with Rolly Crump, but they certainly all were there, and um, they would from time to time have you know uh, meet and greet sessions, I guess you'd call them. I think they were called designer enrichment, um, and you would listen to them talk about their you know time at Disney, and uh, so those were extremely valuable. And um, oh, Herb Ryman would always come around. He was like the you know, like when Walt said he was a little bee, uh, Herb Ryman was also a little bee (laughs) 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 buzzing around. Um, And so he, you know, he always had some um, great uh, suggestions, like I should say, and insights. Uh, I was afraid to be too aggressive about, um, you know, knocking on the door and, and sitting down and, you know, asking them to, regale me with you know their time because um, I didn't want to seem like a fanboy right that term was not even a term back then but um but there was definitely kind of a thing that you didn't want to do that you know I got that feeling right away was that you didn't want to be a fanboy and so I stayed low-key about that and you know uh whenever you know if, if we happen to be in a meeting or a lunch together, I would ask questions, but I wouldn't go out of my way to um, to knock on their doors, which I regret now. I wish. I, (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think some of them would have been very open to it. And I think some of them would have been shocked and, you know, looked at me like a crazy fanboy (laughs) 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 because, you know, there was not a fan base for that back then. People didn't know what wed Imagineering was. Right. And, um, and so, you know, there were maybe a few people who knew, who were, you know, really excited about it. And some of them, you know, were a little bit crazy maybe. And so, not crazy, but, you know, overly zealous. <laughs> and so maybe some of the older Imagineers have had, you know, some um, experience with that. And I don't know, I just didn't want to be the, the salivating fanboy. So, but I, I kind of regret it now because now it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Be, you know, I mean, there are, you know, people high up in the organization now, uh, that you could call fan boys or fan men or fan women. And I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. It's good to have that culture of, of being, uh, yeah. a, a passionate about the company that you work for. Right. And, uh, it, I could only imagine if if uh, if you had had those conversations, who who might have been the the ones that were very welcoming to you to you being a, a huge fan, and then those who might have been a little a little more uh, kept away about uh, just wanting to get to their work and and keep keep uh, right. keep it focused prof- on the professional side of things. Right. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, you you worked on so many projects and. Just to get to a few of them, I mean, we could we could talk for hours about all of them, but just to to highlight a few of them, um, one of them that is jumping a little farther ahead, uh, kind of skipping around, but for the decades a little bit is, uh, working on um, Disneyland Paris and in particular the uh, Sleeping Beauty Castle, which. A lot of Disney fans, myself included, consider to be probably the most beautiful castle at any Disney park. Uh, I think maybe the only one to potentially rival it now might be since they changed Hong Kong Disneyland, which looks incredible too. But um, Disneyland Paris, I mean, that, that castle is just magnificent. It's gorgeous. And having seen it in person, it's a, it's a beautiful castle. Uh, what is it like to, or what was it like, I should say, to design a, a Disney castle um and did it feel different than designing an attraction uh, to, to design such an, something that really is like an icon of the park mm.
1: well it didn't feel different than designing an attraction because i guess i considered it an attraction uh because it had so many components True. You know, to it. in addition to um a couple of shops that had you know a walkthrough area and the dragons layered down below um, so it was unusual in that um it was something i was very passionate about doing and i knew i could do it but i couldn't believe i was doing it while i was doing it and um so and then it became very challenging when when it was handed over to a third party um because it started to drift a little bit and so i became you know i had to become a little bit aggressive in um beating it back to its um in, you know intended form if you will right um but um, through all of that and you know there were so many people involved with it i i my deal was to keep the form of it um lovely and beautiful and unique and and french but without being a copy of a french um castle or even a French, a specific French, um, region. So like the one in, in, at Walt Disney world, which is beautiful, is a Loire Valley, very specifically a French Loire Valley Renaissance era, uh, with some Gothic thrown in castle. Right. Um, it's almost like a, uh, it's almost like a term paper, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you would get an A plus, Uh, and so this had to be a little bit different. And so, um, there were some folks who kind of drifted in that weren't like the main players on it, but that would, you know, I like, you know, Louis the 16th. So I'm going to make this Louis the 16th. And it's like, no, no, this isn't Louis the 16th. There was a little bit of, you know, kind of just keeping it that that's what my thing was just to keep that style and that profile of it because the way I looked at it was that we had made a mistake in Tokyo by replicating one of the castles and so that so now Tokyo Disneyland in my opinion then didn't have its own face or or it's you know the castle is the face of the park right and so it needs to have a unique but Disney uh, face and so uh, I just wanted to make sure that this was you know fit that kind of um, vision of it being the face of Disneyland Paris and, um, and being beautiful and working in silhouette, working as a logo, um, working in 360. Uh, so uh, from every view, it's beautiful. Uh, and that's where I kind of kept, you know, that's where I rode herd, if you will. And then there were other people, um, that took on little elements of it, like Skip Lang and, and others, um, were you know kind of the um uh, the shepherds of the um dragon's lair and lenny tomora uh, interior designer had the merlin shop and david Bricky had uh the holiday shop and so you know different folks had different aspects of it that uh, made it even better right it's
0: definitely a lot of- a common thing with all the attractions, there are so many people working on them. I mean, you get lots of great ideas from from different sources and people with different skill sets and talents, and can contribute all kinds of ideas to these projects. And you know, there's you're talking a little bit about how you thought about the, the development of the castle and the design of it, and it has me thinking about process because I feel like, especially as a when you ha- when you have to conceptualize something new, it can be challenging to have truly a, a blank slate when i'm sure that there are some some ideas that are presented as as must-haves or it, it should look somewhat like this or be inspired by this but i guess my question is where do you draw some of the inspiration in the very early concepts for a, a new attraction or a new park like where do you get some of that or what's your process for drawing inspiration early on for
1: any attraction
0: any attraction if you have a specific one in mind as a good example that's great but just well
1: the imagineering has always had a great library you know a great um information resource center uh that goes back to you know even the the walt disney studio had one back in the 30s at hyperion and then it was moved to burbank and it got even bigger right and then um when imagineering moved from the studio to glendale in 1961 they established their own um, small library there. And so it's always been an important part of um, any of the design. And in fact, you know, all the books are still there that were um, touched and rifled through by Herb Ryman and Bill Martin and all these guys. That's very cool, yeah. And so, you know, sometimes you can find the origin of the design in some of these books. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, it was an excellent, excellent library. I remember on Epcot checking out many books um, for the Imagination Pavilion, and um, one of them, I you know, I, I took down the name and I uh, purchased not long ago on eBay because it was it was a book that was like done in the fifties, I think, or sixties, but it was imaginative architecture because we were trying to figure out what the building. You know what? Build what do you build to represent imagination? Right. One person's imagination, you know, is not the other person's. So <laughs> exactly. Um, so I was, you know, drawing, scribbling up some ideas um, that I was um, seeing in some of these books, and um, eventually, I think it was Dan Gouzet who came up with uh, with these truncated um, silver halide crystals. Um, but I was working on some crystal ideas and, and, uh, a couple other people It was similar in some ways to, I guess what happened years later on the castle. I never kind of realized the parallel, <laughs> right. right? There were multiple people working on ideas for the, um, for what the building would look like. And, um, I, you know, when Dan did his little, you know, quick sketch, that was it. That was, it was so like, that's perfect. And, um, and then I ended up being the de facto architect on it. I mean, I'm not an architect, um, but we were short of architects on that job because Journey into Imagination was a last minute ad. So they, and all the architects were deep, deep in their um, projects. So, um, and they, we needed to build a model for presentation purposes. And so the model builders needed some drawings And so, and, and also someone needed to fit all of the ideas into a building and the ride layout and everything. So I kind of became the de facto architect until, um, until one came along a few months later. So I did all the initial geometry on those crystals and how they would fit together and, uh, how we could fit something inside of it. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's definitely, a, it's, it was one of my favorite attractions uh, growing up. I still enjoy the current version and it's not quite the same as it was. And there's a lot of pieces that have been taken out of it, but I still, uh, I enjoy the spirit of that attraction more than anything else. Um, and Figment, Figment's, yeah. Figment's a blast. He's great. Yeah. Um, one of the concepts I definitely wanted to talk about because it led to one of my favorite attractions was if, I re- if, I've, if I've heard the story correctly, you were thinking of synchronized sound on coasters long before there was synchronized sound on right. coasters. So right. um, how did that, I guess, idea come to you and how did you help to bring it from this idea into a, a reality?
1: It started the idea, the germ of the idea, started when I was driving back and forth from my home to Disneyland. Um, when I got a car, I was 16 years old, I got a tape deck, um, and I would, you know, play different music. Um, and I was, you know into the bands at the time, too. So um, I noticed that certain parts of the journey from my home, which was in Newport Beach to Disneyland, I was about a 20 minute drive. And sometimes what you were listening to or what I was listening to on the tape would correspond with some moment um, that would reveal something, probably something very, you know, ordinary. Although there was one stretch on Jamboree Road where you would reach the top and then you'd see the harbor and the ocean. So I I began timing the music to see (laughs) Uh, if I could, and I'd be using like the band sticks or <laughs> yellow or, uh, you know, I can't remember them all now. I still have all the tapes. And so then when I started, um, when I moved to Florida for Epcot, I was there for a year and I started doing the same thing there and I would do it with some of my friends and they, and I go, okay, wait, you know, and whether we were on property or whether we were, um, going out to Cocoa Beach or something. And uh, it was, was something that was always in my head. And so then when I got back to California, I started putting tapes together for Space Mountain. So I created a, um, well, you had to create multiple timing charts for it because there, were, um, there was a, a variable of about 20 seconds or maybe more um, of trip time depending on the weight of the vehicle, the time of day, the, um, humidity, all of these things, the heat of the wheels, you know? So all of these things either make a really fast rocket or a really slow rocket. So, um, I came up with these tapes that used both, um, popular music of the time and also John Williams scores and the black hole also. And, awesome. uh, and I timed them out and I knew like a morning, a, an empty morning rocket is going to be slow. A full evening rocket is going to be fast. So I had a fast tape and a slow tape. <laughs> um, and I, and I had a mixing board so that I could uh, uh, crossfade the music. And uh, I came up with about I don't know how many I demoed. I probably came up with about ten, but I demoed maybe four of them, three or four of them. And at by this time, I was doing my duty, my time at Disneyland in the WDI office at Disneyland SQS Show Quality Standards, and I was um, working for Kim Irvine at the time, just doing kind of the daily, you know, um, uh, design challenges um that would come up every week at the park and so um sometimes before work i would go into space mountain when they had just started cycling the vehicles or after work i'd go over there and the ride operators were accommodating so they knew <laughs> that i was working on this experiment and they'd let me uh ride around empty rockets before the guests were there um and um So I demoed them to several um, important people and they all liked it. There was one that didn't like it, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, you never know. It's one of these things where you just would never predict Uh, it's like people who get scared of things. Yeah. Yeah. Really? You know, (laughs) the rock is scared of spiders. It's that kind of thing. Um, (laughs) So i was kind of surprised that he thought it was uh, over it over it overloaded him he said he was over he was over um, stimulated but everyone else really liked um the idea and then it just kind of sat there for a while because of the challenge was the technology wasn't there to do the elastic kind of um timing that you needed to make it you know you, you want the symbols to go off when you know you reach the bottom of the drop um or you want the sense of anticipation as you're going up the lift and then as it reveals something there's a crescendo so this is all just going back to you know steamboat Willie, right right <laughs> you want the right you know uh sound to hit at the right uh moment and um so the technology wasn't quite there yet plus i don't know if the desire was quite you know everyone thought it was the neat idea, but it sounds expensive and technically, um, challenging. So it kind of just floated there for a while. And then I think when we did, let's see. So when we did Disneyland Paris, uh, we had an added capacity program right after we opened that. And, um, so space mountain was coming. And so was, um, and, and but we thought we would test the idea out first on Casey Jr. circus train because it was a very predictable um it was a power coaster that meant that it's electrically um you know driven versus gravity driven. So there wasn't variable uh in the timing of it. So right. and I, I think at the same time Ed Sato um, had um disneyland for a while he was the art director one of the art directors down at disneyland and so he wanted to do this too so i think it all kind of like okay disneyland wants to do it disneyland paris wants to do it we can test it out on um casey jr out there and so eddie got dick dale and i found a guy uh, steve bramson i think did it did the uh, score for space mountain uh for tim delaney And um, that's where it was born. But I had an idea to do, always had this idea of doing a rock and roller coaster, going back to my rock and roll days, if you would call it that. Um, And so, you know, I was also pitching that. And there was very little interest in it until, (laughs) um, well, you know, until I think Universal announced that they were going to do some kind of, big, similar thing. I think I can't remember what, or maybe it was just to go up against islands of adventure. Um, but they needed something fast and big and e-ticket, but not too expensive. And so I pitched it and they took it and I didn't follow it through that, um, became one of Kathy Mangum and, uh, Paul Osterhout's baby. Once, uh, once I pitched it, I pitched it over to them. Uh, <laughs> I, I was still involved. I uh, went out and we met Aerosmith and all of oh, that. Oh, that's so cool yeah um but um so but finally the rock and roller coaster was accepted as a legitimate idea like three years earlier it's like disney is not rock and roll you know it's not part of our brand uh you know attributes
0: right (laughs) meanwhile it's still existing 22 years later and just about the same form it started in with the same band and it's just as thrilling as it was and i think that there are so many. Kids who were introduced to Aerosmith because of Rock and Roller Coaster.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> so, exactly.
0: It's a it's a it's a great coaster. And nowadays, it just is expected that when you have an attraction, you're going to have a score of some kind right. that goes with it, whether it's a coaster or a time a perfectly timed attraction. Right. Um, I mean, Disney has expected. been
1: all about music and motion since the beginning of the company, since Steamboat Willie. Yeah. No, That's a great analogy, flowers, actually. Flowers and trees and Fantasia. You know, it's always been about the synchronization of, of uh, sound, music, and motion.
0: Yeah, And you helped do it for Disney attractions. What Walt helped do for animation. So it's uh, nothing to, uh, nothing to sneeze at. It's a, it's definitely a big accomplishment. Um, just to point out a, a couple of other projects. One of the other big ones was. Working on Hong Kong Disneyland, and I feel like that was probably like Disneyland Paris or Euro Disney at the time had its challenges of being uh, an international park, and of course Tokyo Disneyland as well. Um, you took on, I think, a bigger role for Hong Kong Disneyland. What was uh, was it? Any more challenging, or I should say, what were some of the challenges of of bringing Disney to Hong Kong?
1: Well, um, I think. It, Hong Kong is is kind of a, a smaller region than any place we've ever uh, built a park before in terms of the uh, qualified, income qualified population that's within a certain prescribed radius. So it was, um, and also it was originally intended not even as a Disneyland. So much like the the studio, um, project in Paris, which also started off not intending to be a full-day park, um, somehow ended up being a full-day park. And I think it was the same with Hong Kong Disneyland. There there had been some experiments with, um, oh, what was it called? Joe Lancesro worked on this really cool um, idea that went out there. It was a traveling show, and it was extremely popular. And that kind of proved the popularity of... Uh, disney entertainment out there and um so they were looking at building something that was not quite a uh, you know a disneyland but it was bigger than an (laughs) RDE. um and i wasn't working on it i was you know working on other projects at the time so there another team started that project and they did such a good job that it became well why then why don't we just call it disneyland you know it has kind of an adventureland area and kind of a fantasyland area and kind of a castle and so we should just you know call it disneyland right but you know the challenge was that only five or six million people um would come the first year or so and so This is where I had kind of disagreements, you know, with the industrial engineering side of the company, which said, well, you know, then then you only do, you know, X number of attractions and people will only be there for X number of hours. And it's like, whoa, whoa, this, You know, we're talking about a really, you know, kind of a small park here. Right. And I think people would be expecting something. Maybe they're not expecting, because who knows what they're expecting, you know, the local audience out there, if they haven't ever been to Disneyland before. But in my opinion, Disneyland's partly successful, because when you leave the gate, um, you only saw a percentage of it. You didn't see the whole thing. I right. have to come back and see more. And my feet are tired, you know. <laughs> and that wasn't, you know, I had a hunch that may not be the case on opening day, and it wasn't the case. It was a beautiful... every square inch of the park was beautiful and well done there just wasn't enough of it and so it was about a four or five hour park to see everything and your feet weren't tired at the end of it and you could say i i pretty much saw the whole thing and um that's a model a business model i hope you know Is i don't think it ever will be repeated but um it was a good lesson i think
0: (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, there are definitely lessons in in Disney history to be learned. But it
1: was it was uh, um, fun to work on with a really great team, and everything came out uh, beautiful on it. I mean, it was just a beautiful park to walk around. the The local hires that we hired for it were enthusiastic. The local creative team was very good. Um, you couldn't really ask for a better scenario other than just more money. And we did. You know, I remember we went back a couple of times. And this was when Pressler was in charge of theme parks and he gave us the money to make it bigger. So you can imagine, you know, how, you know, unbig it was before that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, and I think, you know, and then when um, Jay Rizzulo came on board, he also uh, threw in more money. I think everyone saw obviously that this park needed more money, Um, but you know, I don't think it came quick enough right and certainly it's grown now to um to a full day you know a truly um uh, right-sized full day park with many many different things to do and still every square inch of it is beautiful
0: yeah it's still a gorgeous park i love as i mentioned earlier the the updates they made to the castle uh, It's it's got it's just a, a lot of great attractions to enjoy there uh, unique attractions to enjoy too so it's it's uh, it's still an amazing park um, but I know it had a it had a rough start uh, compared to to some of the others or at least a, a smaller budget to start with right um a, a f- I guess a kind of not not so much a philosophical question but a conceptual question there are so many attractions at Disney that are rid orig- uh, what I would call originals things like rock and roller coaster where they're just um, They they come obviously from some inspiration, but they're unique to the parks. You can't find you can go to an Aerosmith concert, but you're not going to find a movie based on Rock and Roller Coaster. And then there are attractions or lands like Cars Land that are based on existing properties. I know Cars Land started as a as another idea at first that was more of a, a general idea, and then moved into once Cars came out, being focused on on Pixar's film. But do you find that it's more enjoyable? to conceptualize something that is completely unique versus something that is based on a film or what are some of the differences or challenges that uh, are unique to either one of those?
1: No, um, I don't think it's different. And um, I mean, I remember <laughs> you know, when I first started at, at WED, there was a frustration that we couldn't um, do. IP. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, know, because there were so many things either in the works or recently done or, um, you know, classics from the past that seemed like, you know, they would make great attractions. So naturally you think, you know, of all of the different things you could do with existing. You know, I always thought some kind of a head trippy Fantasia thing would be really cool. That would be cool. but using, selecting very, you know, very carefully, (laughs) very the most exciting uh, and enthralling uh, moments from it. And I think I did a proposal for that one time. Um, And, you know, there was always this great expectation that the next film was gonna be the one that we could do that with, Tron or The Black Hole, or um, before I started there, it was Island at the Top of the World. And, you just really couldn't get any interest even if the film did relatively well it still didn't seem like it could get a lot of interest right in it. so it, we you know we're like please come up with a film <laughs> that is extremely popular that we can base an attraction off of and um you know i think a tron attraction would have been great um despite the fact that you know it it still did well it just wasn't a you know it was not a blockbuster but um people respond to well done attractions more than they respond to the IP in my opinion. So if you took an, I, you know, if you took IP and, and, and squandered it and didn't do a good job, that's not as good as doing, you know, taking a generic idea or a non IP idea and doing a really great job with it. So I always think it's better to take a bad idea and make it great than vice versa. And if you want, you know, like, an example of a bad idea that's great is Ratatouille. You know, can you imagine that pitch <laughs> of, you know, of the film I'm talking about, you know, pitching the film, about a rat that uh, you know, becomes a chef. It sounds like a bad idea, <laughs> but um, you know, it's a great film, of course. So um, it's all in the execution. Now, I think that's all way to put it. I don't care whether it's IP or not IP. Now, I do happen to think there's too much emphasis on it and it would be nice to see more original ideas, but when you're working on it, I think that the challenge is the same, you know, is to, is to come up with a, you're kind of like a movie director and, and the, the challenge is to come up with the right simple storyline through line that um, makes it easily understandable. So it doesn't have to be explained through narration. And um, and creating surprises and goosebump moments, you know, when you turn the corner and something is revealed or something is concealed, and um, you know, I, I think Roger Rabbit is a great example of that. I didn't work on that; that's Joe Cicero's, but it's such a great, great uh, dark ride attraction, and it perfectly takes the um, it takes that content, and you know, I think if you're laying that attraction out and working out all the scenes, I think uh, that was probably Robert Coltrane who did that for uh, along with Joe, you're thinking about the excitement and um, the surprises and the lighting and the special effects. And it, at that point, it doesn't matter whether it's an original idea or whether it's uh, you know, IP.
0: Yeah, that, that, it makes sense. I think that there's a, your point about execution is, is probably the, the, right way to think about it because regardless of if it's based on IP or not it's all about the experience of really what what the attraction is and there are so many examples of what I you know some of my favorite attractions are based on on IP um Star Wars Rise of the Resistance is my new favorite and that's clearly based completely on the Star Wars universe it's like being in a Star Wars movie right um as as a conduit to talking about the sort of my my wrap-up questions here because I want to meant talk about what you've been doing since. Uh, I feel like you're in that, again, position of being a, an Imagineer by by trade and also a historian and someone who appreciates all the work that goes into, and you sort of, like me, study all the all the specific details and, and everything that went into it. So rather than, I was thinking of asking what your favorite attraction didn't work on was, but I'm gonna ask it a different way. If you could work on any attraction, that exists now um, that you didn't get the chance to work on? What would be the attraction you're like, I wish I could have worked on on this one?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I know there's several because I, you know, in my head, what you just said rings true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably um, Phantom Manor in Paris or um, Hong Kong's, why did I just, the name just slipped away Mystic from Manor. me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're so similar. Just, I was say, just saying it, it the other day. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, those two I mean, I would, would always have liked to have worked on a haunted mansion um, in one way or another, or um, Tower of Terror. I actually worked on some proposals for um, upgrades and updates to Tower of Terror. And um, I think one of the ideas was, was adopted. But um, I had a whole kind of bag of tricks that um, I had proposed at one time. Um, But yeah, one of the haunted man, any of the haunted man, you know, an update to the haunted mansion, Phantom (laughs) Manor, Mystic Manor, uh, any of those, I I would have loved to have worked on. Um, That those are the ones that come to mind, I guess, first.
0: Yeah, that's a great, great answer. And perhaps they'll need one in the future. I don't think Shanghai has one yeah so that would be that would be the next park to uh potentially get one maybe that if they can bring you back on as a a consultant for a project like that that would be a a dream come true (laughs) so like i said it was kind of leading into my my wrap-up questions here because since you uh well even when you were in imagineering you were always asking questions and, and trying to learn more about the parks and how they were developed and the who worked on the attractions and i know that you're working on a book as well um so I'd love if you could tease out a little bit about uh, what you've, what the book is, what you've maybe done so far, and if we have a potential uh, date that it might be released. But I know that's probably not, not the case yet.
1: The story of this book is longer than the story, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it's, you know, it's. I didn't set out to become a book writer, um, I, but I thought in the lo- in my last few years at WDI, I was doing. Um, some work that was related to its history and its legacy and, um, and also, you know, how best, you know, how, what, what are examples of our best work and our best processes? And I thought, you know, I should do a book like the art of animation, like the Bob Thomas art of animation book that I grew up with. Right. Right that inspired me before I wanted to be an Imagineer, I wanted to be in animation. And that book had so many insights to it. It was, you know, it's the perfect um, primer for understanding the art and the process of animation. So I thought a companion, you know, the art of Imagineering um, would make sense. And I actually created a presentation, a keynote presentation that I gave several times there, and I thought this would make a great book. Um, b- but I also realized the challenges of doing that book, because what, what do you talk about? What do you not talk about? You're going to have a million editors on that book. <laughs> uh, so I want to do that book. There's some people that want me to do that book, <laughs> um, but I don't think I'm going to start out with that book. I would like to do a book on the archaeology of Disneyland, because I've just in the course of doing my job over 35 years at Imagineering, I've learned and collected um, so many things that are interesting to me um, that I don't think would have been interesting to people 20 years ago or 25 years ago. In fact, when I first started talking about doing this, um, people said, well, that's you you and 10 other people. And I go, I know, right? But then I mentioned it in a meeting one day with some of the um, publishing folks, and they said, that's a great idea. This was not long ago. Right. Um, And, you know, why don't you forward us something? And so I started working on that. At the same time, I retired. So I thought, this works out perfectly. Yeah. Um, But in the course of doing that, starting research up for that book, I started um, uncovering interesting morsels of information, mostly regarding people I had never heard of, Imagineers I had never heard of before, and started meeting Imagineers that I had never heard of before, like um, Tonya McKnight. And, um, and, you know, I remember having lunch with Glenn Durflinger and asking him questions about who did, you know, what certain things, and he easily could have Taking credit himself because he was the um, job captain of those particular jobs, and his name is on all of the blueprints, on all, all of the drawings. And he would mention a name, and I'm like, "Really? I've never heard that name." And then I would take that name to Tanya, and she'd tell me something about it. I'm so as so okay, that's interesting. That'll make a good book too. But let me <laughs> get into this archaeology thing. And the archaeology book got delayed a year or two. And um, and in the meantime, I'm still digging around, deep diving as you will, and um, coming up with more and more names and interesting things and projects I had never heard of. And so I pitched the idea um, to the archives and to the um, Hyperion Historical Alliance, which is an outside group, um, but that gets some um, cooperation and support from the archives. And they liked the idea of doing a deep dive on the early days of Imagineering. Basically, it, it, it started off as the Forgotten Imagineers, which is a terrible name, uh, <laughs> but it was going to be focused on what I thought would be sixty people. Yeah. And so, as I did my research and and <laughs> got deeper and deeper, uh, it was significantly more than sixty people and realized I'm not going to be able to get bios or information on every one of these people. So, um, we'll have some other, you know, fun things in the book, uh, lots of revelations about where the work took place. Um, a lot of the early imagineers, um, most of them came from the studios. They didn't all come from 20th century Fox. And, um, but they were almost all involved in one way or another in film, even if they were licensed architects. So, um, most of these people went on to do something that you've heard of. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) In their, um, post Disney career, post wed career. And so there's, you know, a few Academy award winners and Emmy award winners and other, uh, award, you know, architectural, uh, recognition, uh, award winners, and um, so the people are interesting, the places are interesting, where the work took place, when the work took place, Um, so all sorts of things that have been completely forgotten, mock-ups that have been forgotten about, that uh, I have found photographs of, not even at the archives. By the way, there's great collections, you know, if you know where to look, there's stuff everywhere. And so I, you know, did a lot of um, aerial reconnaissance using um, the collections of the aerial um, photography libraries of some of the uh, universities to discover, oh, what's this interesting thing in the back lot of the (laughs) DC studio? (laughs) And the, you know, and then you find out what it is and it's very interesting. And you go to Bob Gurr and it's like, I can't read I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so, you know, you, you get some new stories. Let me put it that way. That's, that's very cool. So well. I'm, um, I'm in the process of sort of finishing it up, but you know, um, I, will submit a first draft, I think fairly soon within the next couple months Um, i'm finishing up a mock-up right now but there's a few people i'm still trying to track down and also i'm going to be very fastidious about fact checking on it so you know and also distinguishing between conjecture and and fact so here's something i'm not sure about but it looks like this was the case versus i know this is the case because it's backed up by photographs memos um and you know and most of the book is corroborated using three or four different sources so there isn't like a single source that i'm basing all of this on
0: that's great i think that's an excellent way to approach it it's almost like a it's a very scientific approach to the subject and uh there is so much that, that's out there that's conjecture first yeah. i realized
1: right too late that I, I probably would have been um, a good candidate for the CIA or the FBI. <laughs> um, now, the book only goes up to 1961. Um, it's it. There will be a second volume, hopefully, that goes to 71, and then that's it. I'm not doing any more beyond that because... Um, and, and I've got most of it. Actually, I have most of the material for most of it all the way through 71, but um, it was broken up in half so that the first half can get out sooner and... Create interest. And um, so, uh, yeah, so it, I'm hoping around a year, you know, it, it might be out. I don't know what kind of, um, you know, how long the editing process uh, or the uh, review process will take place because it still has to be reviewed by Disney Legal and all of that. Of course. Uh, but it's, uh, it's pretty far along now. And um, just some of this fact checking, I think is gonna dribble on, you know, for a little while. If it takes too long, then I'll just take that piece out. Part of the book is, you know, I can't tell the full story on all of these people or all of these anecdotes. So it's for other sleuths. Uh, It's a starting point for other sleuths to (laughs) um, deep dive, you know, because all of these ancestry type, you know, sites are, are helpful. A lot of these people, though, don't show up on those sites, so require, you know, contacting relatives and all of that. That's not my strong point. Other people love doing that. And um, so there's going to be much more that could be dug up um, after the book is released. But that'll be, that's the interactive part.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. That's really awesome. A uh, year is not too far off. If it's, I um, won't hold you to it, but that's, uh, that's definitely encouraging to know it's not too far away. Also, uh, you never
1: know, yep. you know, someone could kibosh it too. So. Uh, <laughs> Let's hope not. It sounds <laughs> like it's a great not. idea. I mean, it'll always exist as a, you know, in some form and it'll always be a, a research piece that I'm sure the archives will love to have. Oh uh, yes. A hundred percent. Uh, I don't foresee any problems, but you know, I have to be realistic in this world. You never know if, you know, management changes, whatever could, could change things. That's very true.
0: Well, hopefully, hopefully it'll all go through. Okay. Um, So then my last question is just where can people follow you to know when the book is up and then see anything else (laughs) you might publish. That's interesting that you come across in your research or just in, in your Disney fandom.
1: Strangely and accidentally, I'm on Twitter, um, but I enjoy it. I've met a lot of interesting people and learned a lot of things. I'm on Twitter as Tom K. Morris, and I'm also on Instagram. And so that's how you can get a hold of me or follow me anyway. I yeah. don't know <laughs> how successful you'll be now getting a hold of me just <laughs> ask. Few weeks, all of a sudden now um, I find myself really busy, busier than probably when I was working. Um, you know, it's not just the book, it's so many other things, but um, I've also maybe overcommitted myself. <laughs> and I have a lot of people, there's actually a lot of people I need to interview. So that's, I'm falling behind in my calling the family, <laughs> the sons, the daughters, the nieces and nephews of these engineers. Yeah. And the list is getting longer, and I need to, you know, I need to get back on that. Well,
0: I will absolutely make sure to, it's a link to those places so listeners can follow you. And uh, I'll just say that the follow part, maybe not the, you know, might not be as successful contacting you, but at least, uh, at least to see what you're posting and uh, to keep in touch on Twitter and on Instagram. But, um tom i I feel like we could have spoken for a lot longer i had so many questions just like you have so many questions about disney but it was great to chat with you for this bit of time and um it was a real real pleasure so so thank you for taking the time to chat with me today
1: well you're very welcome and maybe we can do it again in the future i hope so that'd be great
0: And with that, we close out episode 101, of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very sincere thanks to Tom for taking the time to chat with me about his experiences at Walt Disney Imagineering and, of course, the projects he's been working on since. I am so excited to see his book or his couple of books come to life and anything else that he might develop in the future. So I want to, of course, turn the conversation over to you and hear which of Tom's many ideas and contributions to the Walt Disney Company and, of course, to Imagineer in particular is your favorite. You can send me your answers and feedback in so many different ways. I would encourage you to follow us on social media at Imagineer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok. Plus, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Imagineer News, and you can join our Facebook group, The Imagination, also called The Imagineer Podcast, Disney Fan Community, to chat with me and others about this topic and all things Disney. So you can click, that you would like to join there. And of course, as soon as I see that request come through, I'll accept you and welcome you into our group you can also send me an email at matt at imagineer and if you haven't yet already subscribed to the show be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button whether you're listening on apple podcasts on spotify podbean stitcher google podcasts or any other podcast app so that you are the first to know when new podcast episodes become available If you haven't yet taken the opportunity to rate and review the show, and of course, if you love the show, it's one of the best things you can do for us, especially if you leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It takes about 10 seconds to leave a rating, and depending on how lengthy your review is, of course, it could take a minute or a couple of minutes to write a review. And I do read each and every review that comes through Apple Podcasts. I'll often share them out to my instagram and facebook stories and i'm so thankful to those of you who have rated and reviewed the show in the past the best thing you can do for the show is very simple and that's to share it whether you share out this episode with tom k morris or your favorite episode of the show or you share out the podcast as a whole or a post on social media or anything you do, even just talking with your friends about Imagineer Podcasts can do a lot to help this community out to build our community of optimistic, friendly, uh, and family-friendly Disney fans, it's so heartwarming to see so many of you uh, gravitating towards this community and staying positive and spreading that optimism about Disney. So I am so thankful to you and encourage you to continue to share the show whenever you get the chance. If you'd like to take your love of Imagineer Podcast to the next level, be sure to look into our Patreon group, which you can find over at patreon.com slash imagineerpodcast. You'll find a link in the podcast description and at on Patreon, by the way, is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N Patreon is a way that you can help to support the show financially and in return get exclusive content, benefits and perks, things like access to a private Facebook group, access to my close friends list on Instagram where I'll frequently post bonus polls, bonus Disney quizzes and other bonus stories you can get access early access to every podcast episode bonus podcast episodes i've been doing also a daily uh, disney music loop where i link you to a music loop of the day something i might be listening to that gets me back into my Disney state of mind and helps me uh, to get over my Disney blues when I'm out at the parks. So you can learn more about those perks and anything else that's available. Of course, these subject these uh, terms and conditions and the perks that are available are subject to change, but you can check it all out again by going to patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast. You can find the link in the show description or at imagineerpodcast.com. I would also encourage you to check out our partners. First, take a look at The Kingdom Insider over at thekingdominsider.com and The Kingdom Insider on all social media platforms to get the latest news about what's happening at Walt Disney World and Disneyland and all other Disney destinations. Plus, you can also get some tips about ways to maximize your next vacation, ways to bring the magic of Disney into your own home, and so much more. So again, check them out at thekingdominsider.com or The Kingdom Insider on your favorite social media channel. Plus, the next time you're ready to book a vacation to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Alani Adventures by Disney, or any other Disney destination, be sure to look into our travel partner, Academy Travel, and for Disney in particular, Mickey Vacations by Academy Travel, because they have been doing this for over 25 years, and they are diamond earmarked, which is the highest level of distinction that Disney awards travel agencies. That's thanks to their level of service and how much they can help you to plan out your next trip. And the best thing is that it's all at no additional charge to you, so they can take out the time, and the hassle of planning all those steps uh, for your next Disney vacation and especially if this is your first time going to Disney or your first time returning to the Magic in a while, they can really help to alleviate a lot of that guesswork and walk you through some of the steps to make the most of your next Disney trip. They can even help you to save money because they're aware of all the discounts that are available. You can request a free quote from them by clicking on any of the travel links in the description of this podcast episode or go to ImagineYourPodcast.com, click on the travel drop down and select your destination. That will take you to a form to fill out. Once you fill out that form, they will get back to you again with a free quote. There's no No obligation to continue from there, but just in case you're curious, they can help to start your vacation planning process. Last but not least, as always, I want to encourage you to go after your hopes, your dreams, your goals, whatever they might be. Take that first step today to make that dream a reality. It definitely takes some hard work, but it is all worth it. and You'll find that the journey itself is one of the most rewarding aspects of working towards your dreams and your goals. And remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons, if you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer podcast.
1: Wait a minute. I love that idea. How about some backstage passes? Oh, oh.
0: Yeah. No. Come, yeah. On. Come on. Come on. Make it happen. Give me some.
1: Okay. Psst. Okay, okay, I'll make it happen. Right, now right. get out of here. We got it. We got I need all of you. See ya. Have a nice ride. Hi, Sal, it's me. Listen, I'm gonna need a bigger car. Make it a stretch. <laughs> In fact, make it a super stretch. Great. <sighs> Excuse me. Okay, folks, look, the show
0: is all the way across town, but I got you a really fast car.
1: Okay, wait, it's out in the alley. Ah. Hey, guys. Guys, guys,
0: guys.